Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Get Better Wellness Radio Show. Today we are going live to talk about a very big subject, and I hope that uh, you will share this with folks that you know will be interested. Um, This radio show, the Get Better Wellness Radio Show, is where we talk about how real food is often the answer, and we can find real help when we stop eating factory food that's loaded with chemicals and artificial ingredients, additives and preservatives, and we open up the door to healing and weight loss and other benefits. So real food for real life. You can visit my website at gettobetterwellness.com. So I do have a great show for you today. We are talking about autism, and we know that we have one in 88 children um, has been identified with autism spectrum disorder. That's according to estimates from the CDC, and one in 54 boys are being diagnosed. So if you are a caregiver or a parent of a child on the autism spectrum, then you'll want to stay tuned, or if you know somebody who would like to know more about that, please share this podcast. It will be available for download on iTunes. And we um, want to know why why is it occurring? What is this um, rate of 1 in 88? And it's growing and it's something that we can do something about. And that's what we want to talk um, about today. We want to talk about treatments and therapies that are working And today we have a world-renowned autism specialist, Dr. Kurt Wohler, with us. And he has spent the last 15-plus years working with families on the autism spectrum with great success. So welcome, Dr. Wohler. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, let me just give a quick uh, thumbnail bio. um, Dr. Waller is a lecturer, educator, um, physician, experienced with um, working with many chronic illnesses, but today we're focusing on um, autism spectrum. But he's also um, an expert in chronic fatigue, um, mental health disorders, multiple sclerosis, And since 1998, Dr. Wohler has been a biomedical autism specialist, and he is the author of several books, um, including Autism, The Road to Recovery, Methyl B12 for Autism, Seven Facts You Need to Know About Autism, and he has created an extensive network of health education websites, um, which are many, and you can find them all on the main website website, uh, drwoller.com, D-R-W-O-E-L-L-E-R.com. So, Dr. Wohler, I um, first uh, encountered you when I attended a conference in Kansas City with Great Plains Lab, and I learned so much in a short week and that I knew I wanted to have you on my show. Well, it's, uh, you know, I appreciate it, Erin. There's there's a tremendous amount of information, uh, you know, with respect to biomedical intervention. And listening to your opening, you know, talking about nutrition, talking about health and wellness with respects to food, uh, and then also, you know, you mentioning these other types of disorders, chronic fatigue and 
rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, et cetera, mental health problems. There's actually an underlying theme with all of these conditions that can be related to the food we eat. It's not to say that it's the only thing we would do, you know, or change somebody's diet, et cetera. However, it plays a huge role in many different types of chronic illness to remove the toxic foods and give the body the nutritious foods that it needs. Autism is a perfect example of this because at its core, you know, we know that the vast majority of kids on the autism spectrum are dealing with a multitude of medical issues. You know, for so long, the traditional medical community has only viewed autism as a neurodevelopmental disorder, and clearly there is a, you know, there's certainly a developmental aspect to it. Um, but doctors such as myself who've been working in this field for so many years, working with families all around the world and having looked at the medical end of things, what we what we realize is that the vast majority of these kids have underlying biological problems, and many of them have extreme sensitivity to various foods that only lead further to medical complications. And we certainly can get into, you know, much of that because at its core, that's really where people need to start. You know, they need to start with the diet and some of the diets that are known to help so many of these kids. Can you just back up for um, all the listeners to bring us all up to speed? What are autism spectrum disorders and what are some signs that parents can look for? The core issues of autism relate to language deficits, social deficits, behavioral problems, and what's called stereotypical behavior. This is the the odd behavior, the self-stimulatory behavior, the repetitive behavior. Um, many of the kids have language problems, not only expressive problems. Some of them don't speak. If they do speak, it's only a few words. Um, they often have receptive language problems where they don't comprehend quite well. Um, they're not processing, you know, information you know, appropriately. Social deficits are extreme. There are some kids who may have some social connection to their parents, some social interest to other kids, but they either don't know how to connect socially or act inappropriately, and then others are just completely disinterested. And then a lot of behavioral problems, Um, you know, everything from, uh, you know, anxiety to obsessive-compulsive behavior to aggression and self-injurious behavior. So it it hits uh, across a multitude of areas. What most parents recognize early on with their kids is a lack of development with language and social connection. Um, And many kids will also then start to take on some of this odd behavior, whether it's flapping their hands or shaking their fingers or what's called self-stimulatory behavior, spinning in circles. They're just not developing normally like other neurotypical kids are. Okay. So at what age um, is autism typically diagnosed? Or by what age, I should say? It's usually, you know, a lot of the pediatric neurologists or neurodevelopmental specialists will tend to hold off a little bit, you know, somewhere around three years, you know, to really see if if they're seeing true signs of this. I've I've had some kids in my practice who were 
given a preliminary diagnosis around two, but you know, usually around three, you know, three years of age or so. Most of the parents notice these problems much earlier than that. They may see a lack of development, you know, socially, language-wise, um, you know, et cetera, around 15 to 18 months. Sometimes it manifests itself between 18, you know, months to 24 months. Uh, and then there are other parents that notice that there's just a difference in their child, you know, even during that first year of life. They may have other kids in the family that, uh, you know, are neurotypical, but their daughter or son just never really fully seemed to connect uh, and is now starting to manifest with, you know, some of the behavioral issues. Sometimes it doesn't get picked up, you know, until the toddler years where they they take on extreme behaviors, whether it's self-injurious behavior, aggressive behavior. But it's usually recognized earlier from parents before they actually get the official diagnosis, but, you know, around age three on average. Okay. So what would you say, you know, with the rate, um, 88 kids now, what are you um, – kind of attributing that to or what have you seen because it wasn't that way 15 years ago why is it increasing like that you know it's a it's a for one thing it's a scary you know phenomena to see the you know how many kids now um you know there's been things tossed around well maybe there's just you know better diagnostic tools or you know, there, there's just an increased diagnosis of it, but not really a really true, you know, increased rate. And that's and that's really been proven to be false. One of the arguments about that is, is if if there really wasn't truly an increase in the cases of autism, only a diagnosis of autism, you know, where are all the autistic adults? You know, I mean, we would be having a, a population. You would have it be having essentially an epidemic of autistic adults in this country, and we're not. So there truly is an increase. Um, you know, I attribute it to a number of things. Clearly, there's environmental factors. Certainly, there are genetic factors involved uh, that are then influenced by the environment. There's been a lot of research into, you know, chemical exposure. Certainly, we've heard about, you know, the, the issues with respect to heavy metal exposure, mercury, you know, being top of the list. But, you know, things like lead and arsenic can be a contributing factor as well. Um, so I think there's not one particular cause. Uh, clearly, the environment, you know, is playing a role. <clears throat> um, you know, from what I've seen in my practice over the years is we need to get away from talking about one type of autism and really understanding that it truly is a spectrum and that it affects individuals at different levels to different degrees. And, you know, those rates, what you're talking about with respects to autism diagnosis, those are classic, um, those are classic rates. What I mean by classic is, is those are kids that meet the, the strict guidelines set forth by, you know, the, uh, the psychiatric profession uh, on criteria for autism. That's not taking into account other kids on the spectrum who may have a language deficit or who may have some kind of social delay, but they don't meet all of the different criteria to get an official label of autism. So the actual rate of kids that are having spectrum issues is much greater than one out of 88 or one out of 54 boys. So I wish I could say there was one cause. It's it's a multitude of things. Uh, The nice thing about it is there's a lot of therapy 
that we can do that makes a, a huge difference for these kids and the families. Okay, so I want to go back, and um, I know it's hard to say there's a cause, but if I'm, you know, wanting to start my family and I want to do everything I can do to protect my future child, um, what kinds of things can I do to avoid environmental causes? How can I avoid heavy metals and, you know, and, you know, tell me about your um, theory on vaccinations. Well, you know, for you know, for for a mother's perspective, um, there's a couple things I feel that they they certainly can do. And one thing is looking at their own sensitivity to foods. So, if a mom has a gluten intolerance or a dairy intolerance, um, those things are best avoided. One thing that many people do is do you know food sensitivity testing to determine what they may be, you know, uh, may be allergic to. Um, the other thing is trying to clean up your environment. You know, eliminate as much household, you know, um, cleaners and, and things that we know tend to be, you know, toxic to the environment and toxic to ourselves uh, as much as possible. Uh, I always think it's a good idea for for moms to do some type of cleansing program, you know, whether it is, you know, removing the diet, improving their nutrition, doing some type of detoxification you know, program where they're they're cleansing the, the the digestive tract, cleansing the liver, and there's a number of different you know programs out there. And actually, my partner, Dr. Trancatella, in my practice, works a lot with women on doing nutritional detox. The other thing is, mothers should check their vitamin D status. Vitamin D has been linked, we know, to MS, so deficiencies of vitamin D are problematic. Vitamin D is also being shown to be quite deficient in many kids on the autism spectrum uh, and in the moms. So optimizing vitamin D levels, you know, is one additional way of improving the mom's health, you know, moving into pregnancy. The issue of heavy metals, it's a huge one. Um, you know, so many people today have amalgam fillings in their mouth, um, and it's not to say that every mom who has amalgam fillings will have a child with, with autism because there's clearly many whose kids are fine. Um, so if you can avoid amalgam fillings, that certainly would be beneficial. If they can be removed uh, and replaced with, you know, composite fillings, then that would be, that would be nice as well. Um, the other thing <clears throat> that, that a... Uh, uh, that a parent can do is, <clears throat> well, the vitamin D for one, definitely improving the health with respect to their, their nutrition. A couple things during pregnancy. There has been a link to autism with moms who have been on SSRIs, these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor medications. So if those can be avoided, that is highly recommended. There's actually some interesting research that shows a link between the use of Pitocin and the development of autism as well, Pitocin being the synthetic oxytocin chemical that's used to induce labor. So that's another thing that I encourage moms to really try and watch out for is to avoid as much as possible a Pitocin infusion to induce labor. Often that Pitocin is used in moms uh, who get an epidural, um, because a lot of times the epidural will then shut down their ability to go into labor, and then the parent, the mom, is given pitocin. And there's a chemical link between pitocin 
and the inhibition of oxytocin in the newborn. And oxytocin is critical in the early stages of development, particularly in those areas related to social bonding, facial expression recognition, and voice cue emotional recognition. It sometimes doesn't become manifest until a little bit later in life, a year, year and a half, two years. But the inhibition of oxytocin is clearly a problem with many of these kids. As wow. far as my yeah. take on vaccines, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big topic, uh, but that's an important one. You know, my feeling on vaccines, and this could, certainly, this could be a whole other show, you know, I have seen far too many kids, from my experience, react negatively to certain vaccines. I am not anti-vaccine, per se. I am anti the overuse and the what I believe the indiscriminate use of vaccines across the board without taking in the individual medical potential underlying medical problems that that particular child may be exhibiting. Um, and so there are, I think that we tend to over-vaccinate in this society, um, but clearly vaccines have played an important role in our, you know, in, in our healthcare system. So, you know, I encourage people to look into the vaccine um, side of things as far as some of the information that's out there, becoming more informed. Probably one of the best places that people can go to just get more informed about the potential issues related to vaccination is an organization called the National Vaccine Information Center. And they just go to, uh, what is it? Um, I think it's 909shot.org, but just type in the National Vaccine Information Center, and they've got all the current research on statistics, safety issues related to vaccines. And another, I um, did a podcast with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, and that you can search out on iTunes. Um, just put in my name, Aaron Shamerlick, into iTunes, and um, you can search down and see that podcast for more vaccine info. And Sherry is, a, I mean, she's a leading expert. She's been at it for a long time, so she would be an excellent resource, you know, for parents to go listen to her information. Great. Well, you were saying that, um, you know, for a long time the medical community has viewed autism spectrum disorders as neurological alone but you and other physicians working closely with families have found that there are some chronic infections also at play and, you know, lack of vitamin D, um, you know, um, status. So can we talk about the, some of the chronic infections and the connection, you know, that you're seeing? Um, what, what's going on and what is that gut connection? It's it's a big one. Um <clears throat> The vast majority of kids that I have seen in my practice over the years have some type of bowel problem. Some have chronic constipation. Others have chronic diarrhea. Others have a mixture of things. Now, there is a complication with many, with many kids on the spectrum where they have a sensory deficit with respect to their bowels where they either don't recognize that they have to have a bowel movement um, and that can lead to chronic, you know, constipation problems because of the, the feedback mechanism in the nervous system. Or some of the kids behaviorally will actually force themselves to not have a bowel movement, um, which can certainly lead to a lot of bowel toxicity over time. 
On the flip side of that are these kids who tend to have a lot of problems with loose stools and diarrhea. Much of that is, you know, attributed to some underlying bowel infection, whether it's parasitic infections, but more commonly certain bacteria and yeast. Yeast, we know, is a major problem across a multitude of different health complaints. Chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia probably being something that your listeners are fairly familiar with, you know, the whole aspect of chronic candida, because we know that candida creates chemicals that can cause a disruption in chemicals in the brain. It's been attributed to depression. It's been attributed to attention and focusing problems. Um, It's been attributed to physical pain within the muscles, increased sensitivity to chemicals, increased sensitivity to foods. So chronic candida is certainly a problem for many people, and it's definitely an issue for individuals on the spectrum because the toxins from yeast also affect certain chemicals in the brain that that affect mood. So a lot of these kids, when they're manifesting with what we call typical yeast symptoms, are often goofy, giddy, and silly. They, they, they're behaving this way. Some of them have inappropriate laughter. And as I described to parents, I said, it's not goofy, giddy, and silly between the parent and the child. It's a child becoming goofy and giddy to themselves. They're, they're basically withdrawing. But there are a lot of inappropriate laughter. As some parents have described it to me, is that their, their kid almost seems drunk. It's like they've had a bunch of alcohol. If you look at the metabolism of yeast in the human body, one of the byproducts that actually gets produced through chemical conversion is alcohol. So it makes sense that some of these kids actually behave like they're drunk. So yeast is a big, big problem. One of the other complicating factors with respect to chronic infections with kids is a bacteria called Clostridia. Now, we hear a lot about Clostridia difficile in the media today because of the resistance of Clostridia to various antibiotics and certainly the problem of Clostridia difficile infections in the hospital. But there are a wide variety of Clostridia bacteria. It's not just difficile. There's other Clostridia bacteria in that family of bacteria that are problematic too, and they create different chemicals, uh, what I call these biotoxin chemicals, in the gut that then get filtered into the bloodstream and affect us neurologically. Now, for somebody, you know, for a child on the spectrum who is already neurologically sensitive, these chemicals can alter brain chemistry, one of them uh, specifically being dopamine. And what is often manifest is extreme behavioral problems, aggressive behavior, self-injurious behavior, irritable, agitated. Uh, Matter of fact, the chemicals from Clostridia have been linked to schizophrenia and other mental health disorders as well. So one of the first things that I recommend that parents do when they're looking to do testing for their child, medical testing, there is a test called an organic acid test. It's a urine test, and I highly recommend specifically doing it from Great Plains Laboratory. And one of the reasons is is that Great Plains and Dr. Shaw has done a tremendous amount of research into these different biotoxins that these organisms produce. 
and their test is the one test that actually has the specific markers that are needed to identify the presence of these organisms. You can do an organic acid test from another lab, and, but they don't have the right markers. So it's the Great Plains test that I've used for years. Right. It's critically yeah, and that's important what that I learned. Sorry. That's what I learned about yeah, in, it, it, in Kansas City, and I've been using that with clients here in the Chicago area, and it is eye-opening. And to see something black and white and say, you know, here's what's going on. There's a yeast problem. There's a clostridia problem. Then, you know, you have more direction instead of just, let's try this, let's try that. <laughs> right. And one of the reasons, and Aaron, real quickly on this concept of, of bacteria and yeast, what I found is that both those organisms need to be identified or at least tested for because a lot of people assume that all of the problems with respect to kids on the spectrum from an infectious standpoint is just yeast. Uh, and the issue is, is many kids get better when you put them on an you know, an anti-yeast diet or give them some herbs or a medication for yeast, but some kids actually get worse. And a lot of times they get worse because they haven't addressed the clostridia bacteria. And the clostridia bacteria will often lead to opposite behavior, aggressive behavior, self-injurious behavior, you know, et cetera. So that test is the, one of the first things that I do in my practice, and I highly recommend people, you know, people do that. One other bacteria that is problematic for many of these kids, not all but some, is um, uh, strep. Some of these kids actually have a condition called PANDAS. PANDAS is a, it's an autoimmune condition secondary to a strep infection. And it leads to obsessive compulsive behavior, motor tics, vocal tics, um, and, you know, and a lot of different types of, you know, odd issues that uh, some of these kids are dealing with, and anxiety as well. <clears throat> so that's another component from a medical standpoint that's important. Not all kids with PANDAS from a strep infection have autism, but many kids with autism also have a complicating problem with this strep bacteria. Does the oat, uh, organic acid test pick up the strep? No, the, the strep is done through a blood test. Um, there's a specific panel. Great Plains has a panel called a streptococcal panel. Uh, there's a blood test that really any lab can do. It's called an ASO titer, and it's you know any doctor or pediatrician can order it, uh, and it's specific for strep. You know, PANDAS is really a, a, it's a it's a laboratory plus a clinical diagnosis. Uh, there's a lot of information. There's a number, of, actually, there's a whole organization of kids and people and adults, too, who actually are suffering from PANDAS. They don't all have autism. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's essentially, at its core, is an autoimmune-related disorder. So that's one other, you know, bacterial problem that comes up periodically. The main thrust, really, for your audience to kind of get started and wrap their mind around all this is, you know, is the gut bacteria and the gut yeast. And then finally, with respect to the digestive system, which then links into a discussion with respect to food, is some of the kids have true inflammatory bowel disease. Matter of fact, there's a variant of an inflammatory bowel disease that's now been identified, and it's called autistic enterocolitis. And it's very similar, you know, to Crohn's disease. So, and it's a definable 
autoimmune inflammatory bowel condition. Um, and then, you know, this is why so many kids on the spectrum actually do well with many of the modified or the dietary programs that are that are used to help modify uh, some of the toxic foods that they're eating. Okay, so can we talk a little bit more about that? I, I know a lot of parents um, already have heard gluten-free, casein-free, but, um, you know, what is the diet, dietary recommendation specifically that you um, make for your patients? Well, as time has gone on, there have been more and more that's learned with respect to the nutritional needs, you know, of, of kids on the spectrum. The gluten casein-free diet is really still the entry point for many, many parents. And I, I highly recommend it because it's been around a long time. It's tried and true. You know, a good 65 70% of the kids um, show improvement, whether it's through the removal of gluten um, and most preferably, you know, casein, which is in dairy, as well. Um, and that's been around for a long, long time. So that's sort of the main entry point for people to, to go to. And there's a couple of reasons why. We know that gluten and we know that casein um, found in dairy, gluten found in wheat, can be a trigger to the immune system from an allergy standpoint. So some kids have a true allergy where they're creating an IgE-related chemical, which can drive inflammation and allergy. Um, the vast majority of kids who are reacting to gluten and casein have what's called a peptide reaction. Peptides are small amino acids linked together, and then you link together peptides to create a protein. So basically, there's these, these small little amino acid chains found within gluten and casein that have a chemical appearance that are very similar to uh, opiates, and the re one of the, the other names for these peptides is they call them glutomorphines and casomorphines because they actually have a, a chemical similarity to morphine. Well, how does that manifest? Well, some of the kids actually almost appear addicted to these substances. They have a, low, um, a higher threshold of pain, so they don't respond to pain, maybe the same way you and I would. Um, and that clearly can be linked because that certainly would be something you would see when, if somebody is taking an opiate medication. Um, it tends to definitely uh, impact their language, impact their cognitive skills. It many times can lead to uh, addictive behavior where that's the only thing they want to eat. So they tend to you know, shun all other food and all they go after is the wheat and the dairy. So when you remove gluten and casein from any of these kids, it's the first time in a long time, if ever, that many times their language starts to improve or they have an improvement in eye contact or their behavior gets better. They start to settle down and calm down. So there is a chemical effect related to gluten and casein, and there can also be an immune system effect with respects to those two food groups. And so that really is the, the main entry point and a, and a very good way to go. But one thing I've recognized over years is that you can actually do a very unhealthy gluten and casein-free diet. You know, you can just remove gluten and casein, but you can, your child can still not be eating healthy food. So right. it, it, it really wraps around trying to incorporate more whole foods. Now, some of the kids who have 
the inflammatory bowel disease problems. Um, or these are the kids that maybe they get benefit from the gluten casein for a diet, but they're still having ongoing bowel problems. They're maybe they're they're underweight. They're not growing. They're, you know their their stools are still loose. Whatever it may be. Um, there's another diet called the specific carbohydrate diet, and the specific carbohydrate diet was developed by a woman by the name of Elaine Gottschall. She wrote a book many years ago called Food. Um, it's called Breaking the Vicious Cycle and Food and the Gut Reaction. And what they found was that individuals who were eating complex carbohydrates, these, <clears throat> these things called disaccharides, um, they weren't breaking these things down. They weren't digesting these foods real well, and, it's contri- and it contributes to a formation of mucus and inflammation in the bowel. And these, these specific, this specific diet, excuse me, the specific carbohydrate diet, has been a godsend for people with inflammatory bowel disease, whether it's Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And it was adopted by the autism community about a decade ago because it was recognized that a percentage of kids on the spectrum also had inflammatory bowel disease, and they did extremely well with the SCD diet. The SCD diet um, is incorporates the gluten casein-free diet. I, I kind of consider it to be the the next level up from the gluten casein free. You know, so gluten casein free would be an entry point and then many people move to the specific carbohydrate also called the SCD diet. <clears throat> and then there are there are other dietary programs that are available based on the individual need of a child. There are some kids who have what's called oxalates. This is a chemical, actually, that's identified off the organic acid test. Oxalates are a chemical that's found in many different foods, healthy foods, you know, for example, almonds and spinach and certain vegetables. Um, but some of the kids absorb the oxalates to too high a degree, and we know that in adults, oxalates at a really high level can lead to kidney stones. Well, sometimes these oxalates accumulate in the kids on the spectrum, and can actually lead to a lot of behavioral problems. Um, it causes pain on urination. Many of these kids who have accumulation of these oxalates are very agitated and irritated, and uh, they're very emotional. And so many of them actually respond well to what's called a low-oxalate diet. That's not usually a first entry point diet that I recommend, uh, but it's something that can be identified from the organic acid test. And then finally, there are kids, and you've probably seen this with other people you've spoken to on your program or maybe people you've worked with, is these individuals who react very strongly to food chemicals, artificial flavorings, artificial uh, colorings. Um, And this has been known within the psychiatric community for a long time that there are individuals who have a strong reaction to these artificial flavorings and colorings where it can lead to headaches, it can lead to mood disorders, it can lead to depression. Um, And clearly we see that with many of these kids on the autism spectrum, where I generally tend to think of these high reactions to these artificial food flavorings and ingredients are these kids who have extreme hyperactivity, um, impulsivity, and they're very hard to handle. They're, they're constantly on the move. They're, they're never settled down. Often many of them do very, very well by 
by removing the artificial foods and eating a more whole food diet. Right. So um, dyes, food dyes, <laughs> fall into that yeah. category. And, you know, this just isn't for people on the autism spectrum. This is for all of us. These foods are neurotoxins. And I know you're also a fan of Russell Blaylock, who was a neurosurgeon for 20 years and has written extensively on what aspartame and these other excitotoxins are doing to us, but it seems like all of that that adults may experience, which I have plenty of clients who, you know, do better when they're off these things, is probably magnified in children on the autism spectrum, I would imagine. It very much is. Matter of fact, one of the first books that I read many years, I was actually in medical school, was Russell Blaylock's, Dr. Blaylock's book, um, what was it called? The Taste That Kills. Mm-hmm. And that was about the whole concept of excitotoxins related to aspartame and MSG. And you're absolutely right. The way that I have, you know, my experience with, with kids on the spectrum is they, they, are, they are the canary in the coal mine. So they are the canary in the coal mine environmentally. So they're very sensitive to environmental toxins, chemicals that they're exposed to. They, some of them can be very sensitive to environmental allergens. So, you know, allergy season or, you know, depending on what part of the country they're living to, they can have behavioral problems or medical issues related to that. And they are um, the canary in the coal mine with respect to foods because, you know, at their core, their their nervous system, their brain <clears throat> is so sensitive to chemical changes um, and because those neural pathways, which we all take for granted, okay, with respect to language, with respect to social integration, with respect to mood, you know, for for most of us, those things were well established and already set in place, but you know, with the kids on the spectrum, those areas in the brain are altered, and they're often very chemically sensitive to a wide variety of things. So, you know, the excitotoxins that Dr. Blaylock talks about, you bet, you know, the kids on the spectrum are many times even more sensitive. So, right. you know, your, your approach on nutrition and the whole concept of diet and whole foods is critical because that, to me, that is the foundation, you know, um, for these kids' health and their and their ability to recover or at least, you know, improve with respect to their functionality. But I could say that uh, with respect to any patient population. I've, I've talked to patients before, you know, I work with people who, you know, have chronic fatigue or hormone imbalances or adrenal insufficiency, and I say, look, I can create the, the best most comprehensive supplement program for you. I said, but it's like, you know, it's like throwing money out the window. If you don't get right with your diet, I don't care what kind of supplements I give you. It's not going to override a lousy diet. And uh, so people need to do the work to create the foundation, and that's the sense of basically what needs to happen with these kids too. I'm sure it's, you know, a process of, 
okay, this is what we need to do for my child, but this is what we need to do for ourselves. A child can't live in a bubble in your home while you're eating you know, processed foods. It's a, a makeover for the whole family, and the benefits are for the whole family. So that's, that's the good thing. But I wanted to go back um, when you were talking about oxalates and pain on urination and IBS and things like that. For the children who don't have the language skills to communicate that pain or what they're feeling, how do they act that out? So what are the clues that a parent can pick up on? That's a tough one um, because a lot of the kids don't have the language to really explain how they feel. matter of fact, the vast majority. Uh, you know, one of the most difficult things, uh, you know, from my experience as a, as a physician, I've worked with a lot of different types of patients. The The kids on the spectrum are some of the toughest because essentially what you're trying to do is interpret and figure out what's going on with a particular child um, medically based on their behavior, but they can't communicate to you how they feel. So you have to interpret how they are responding to various situations and then try to isolate it down to a specific cause or a few causes. A couple things, though with respect to if a parent maybe had a suspicion about oxalates. Um, typically, kids with high oxalates, they, <clears throat> they'll they oftentimes, um, again, they'll have pain on urination. Now, that may be, that may be difficult, but a lot of times the, the kids will either, if it's a boy, they'll be grabbing at their groin area um, quite frequently or they'll be screaming on urination. Girls will also be many times kind of grabbing at the groin area um, because they're uncomfortable. They're often, um, they can't tell you that they're obviously having pain on urination, but that's sometimes a clue. The other thing is just the behavior. And <clears throat> if they are constantly under a state of being agitated and irritable, um, if they look like they're constantly you know, uncomfortable for some reason. Uh, that can be another indication of an oxalate issue. But to be honest with you, you sometimes just got to do the testing because there's not one clear-cut way of knowing for sure whether a child does or does not have an oxalate problem. You got to do the test to see what the levels are and then many times just trying the diet to see if it helps. A clue with respect to inflammatory bowel problems whether that's gastritis, you know, uh, uh, inflammation in the small intestine or the large intestine, is pain after eating. Some kids, when they eat, they, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, they'll be quite agitated, uh, sometimes headbanging, sometimes hitting or screaming, and it seems to come about after a meal. Reflux, we know, you know, esophageal reflux can many times manifest itself at, the, at nighttime, uh, and this can also be a problem for some kids. And so if you have kids that are waking up in the, at nighttime and they're agitated, they look like they're in pain, they look like they're dis, in discomfort, it's probably some type of gastritis or reflux problem. Some of the other kids um, who have a lot of bowel pain will actually leverage themselves over furniture. So <clears throat> they will either leverage their abdomen over the end of a table or the end of a chair or the end of a couch 
and you'll see them kind of rocking back and forth trying to find that pressure point to relieve the pain. Uh, because most little kids don't have the upper body strength, you know, to push against their abdomen. Um, that can be a telltale sign that there's some underlying gastrointestinal pain going on. So some of those those are the, the common things that you'll see, uh, but, you know, many times you've got to do the testing to see exactly what's going on. So when you see a patient for the first time, you're always doing the organic acid test. Is that pretty true? That's Yes. That, you know, there's a lot of tests, and... <clears throat> You know, we talked about diet. You know, uh, there's there's definitely some complexities. It's easy to say, just change your diet. Now, for an adult, you can say, look, here's a menu plan, here's a shopping list, go to the store and buy this, and, and this is what you need to do. For kids on the spectrum, um, many of them have extreme rigidity to change. And so it can be a real trial for some parents to change their child's diet. So sometimes it has to take place over time. Uh, so it's not it's not always easy, but it's definitely necessary. The what I do in my practice if I'm assessing a new a new individual is there's a wide variety of tests that I may consider. There are some, certain non-blood tests and then there are blood tests that I might want to do. But I've been around long enough to know that there's a lot of therapy that can be implemented that can help a child feel better, give the parent some relief, give the parent some hope, and the encouragement to keep moving forward with this that doesn't require blood right from the get-go. They can look at changing their child's diet, simply doing a gluten casein-free diet in the beginning. There are various supplements that can be implemented that oftentimes help kids feel better and improve cognitively. Um, there's a therapy I use called methyl B12, which is a subcutaneous injection of a of a B12 vitamin called methylcobalamin, and it's a, been a huge boon to the autism community because it so many kids improve with with respect to their language, with respect to their eye contact, their comprehension, etc. And then you know testing becomes important. I've often felt that if a person could only or a parent could only afford to do one test, what would that test be? And in my experience, it would be the organic acid test, that, that test from Great Plains. It's a urine test, so there's no blood you know, involved, and it gives you tremendous information with respect to yeast and bacteria, oxalates, other nutritional imbalances, and other metabolic you know, problems that can be addressed nutritionally. So from just a dietary supplement and looking at yeast and bacterial problems, a lot of therapy can be implemented and a tremendous amount of improvement that can be seen in these kids without having to do thousands of dollars of testing and do blood testing. Are other tests necessary over time? Yeah, they are. Um, is blood testing become essential for many kids? It does. But, you know, it doesn't ha all have to be done at once. And I, I lay this out, actually, in my book called Autism, the Road to Recovery. And, and people go to um, autismrecoverybook.com. It's, it's an e-book that they can, you know, purchase and instantly download. I go through this step by step, and I, and I give my rationale for why this is um, and how much can be done for their child you know, before they spend, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars on testing. So 
Yeah, that's important for people to understand because I think people many times get can they get overwhelmed and confused with all of the information out there. And my whole take has been just start the process. It's a process over time, you know, but not everything can be done right off the bat. Um, right. And to be honest with you, no matter what, where a person enters this process, um, whether they do $5,000 of testing right off the bat and try to do, you know, five different therapies, you know, all within the first month, the vast majority of kids are going to improve you know, over the ensuing months, and I often tell people, look, expect to be doing some type of program like this for a couple years, just like you would be doing speech therapy or behavioral therapy or occupational therapy. It's going to take time. That doesn't mean that they don't see any improvements for two years. The improvements do come, but it's a process, and so they have to be patient. So I just um, we just have a few minutes, but I wanted to ask you. Um, now you were saying, you know, you can be on a junk food, gluten-free diet. We see all the products out there. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a real food diet that um, you know doesn't contain grains that have gluten. But I know Peter Osborne's work is showing all grains have some sort of gluten in it. So. You know, if parents are pulling out wheat, barley, rye, and oats um, and not seeing the improvement or they see a setback, then go for all the grains. You know, it's a slow process, but if you've already pulled out the big ones, then the the rest of them, who's eating those anyway in much quantity if you get the wheat out? Right. Yeah, and by the way, that tends to what happen, That tends to be what happens with a specific carbohydrate diet. Okay. Uh, is people tend to move more in that direction, and yeah, I mean, are things are things getting more complicated as far as our diet? Yeah, they are. I mean, just with all of the, you know, and now you've got the whole issue with GMO, you know, and mm-hmm. you've got some kids that are all real sensitive to that. So there's, uh, I wish I could say it was all easy. Uh, it's it's not all easy, but it's all very worthwhile and the beautiful thing today with the internet with um, the access that people have to information at their fingertips is there's so many things available such as you know your wonderful program there's there's other websites um, there's just there's and, and and honestly the access to food I mean there there's more of a consciousness now of whole foods Gluten casing free foods, even many times in the in the supermarket or companies that actually now are specifically home delivering these types of things so there's there's much more available to people than there used to be. Um, I actually have a, a very informative website it's called the Autism Action Plan. If people go to autismactionplan.com, it's a membership site they can join on a month to month basis if they want, and they have you know, access to me on a daily basis. There's a very active parent forum where people post me questions throughout the day. They can post me privately. They have questions about supplements or other therapies or testing or just troubleshooting something that may be going on with their child. Uh, that's been a, a big boost to parents. And I, I, I work with people all over the world, you know, throughout the U.S. and all over the world who access me through that website. So there's resources like that for people. Uh, and 
we're, we're living in an age, fortunately now, that, that uh, we have these things available to us. Exactly. Um, can you just say a few minutes, um, address the aspect of fat in the diet and maybe a ketogenic diet, if you use that and have seen how that might work? The ketogenic diets tend to be, there's actually a program for individuals with uh, seizure disorders um, that have done well, you know, with a, a ketogenic diet. If I, if that's something that I feel is necessary, I, I usually have that parent work with a nutritionist, you know, to really make sure that their child is getting, you know, the nutrients that they need. I don't personally feel comfortable you know, for people to try and explore with that on their own unless they have a lot of training and uh, they're really well educated about it. But, the, you know, the ketogenic diet is certainly something that has been useful for, you know, the kids with uh, with seizure problems. It's not a common diet that would be just sort of the, I don't want to say run of the mill, but, you know, the more common kid on the spectrum. Um, what was the other question you asked? Um, just fat in a diet in general. Oh, fat. That's a big one. Uh, we know that a lot of kids are, you know, are deficient in the mega fatty acids. Certainly a lot of them have omega-3 fatty acid deficiencies. This is why so many have benefited by fish oil supplements. Um, interestingly, when you actually do essential fatty acid testing on many of the kiddos, you'll some, many of them have uh, omega-6 fatty acid deficiencies too, but that's not all that well known because everybody's so focused on the omega-3s. But, you know, uh, fish oil, omega-3 fatty acid supplementation is an important part of, you know, a supplement program for kids, and a lot of them do better with it. One interesting thing that people need to be aware of is cholesterol deficiency. And there's a lot of research now that is showing that not only in autism, but a lot of other chronic health conditions, um, are people have a deficiency of cholesterol. And the research into cholesterol and autism is important because cholesterol is not only the precursor to sex hormone production, as well as the hormones that feed into the adrenal glands for cortisol, but it makes up a tremendous amount of the myelin. Uh, in the brain, which is the protective coating around the brain itself, it helps to make up a percentage of the cell membrane so that the cell-to-cell communication is intact. But I did some research and found that cholesterol deficiency, when it's present in autism, often these kids, the more deficient it is, the more irritable, the more agitated, the more behavioral problems the more sensory problems they have, whether it's touch sensitivity, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity they have. And I found a link between cholesterol deficiency and oxytocin. Now, remember I talked about oxytocin with respects to pitocin in pregnancy right. for the induction of labor. Well, it turns out that oxytocin is a, is a bonding hormone that all we all produce. Many of the kids have deficits in oxytocin in the brain, and cholesterol acts as a stabilizing, um, uh, has a stabilizing function on the oxytocin receptor. And the presence of oxytocin actually improves the binding of oxytocin at its receptor. So when you have a cholesterol deficit, the oxytocin is not working as well. 
So there's a relationship between cholesterol deficiency and oxytocin and autism as well. So the fat in the diet and eating healthy diet and eating adequate cholesterol is important. And if a, pers- if a parent is going to do blood testing, let's say they're going to the pediatrician, the pediatrician wants to do blood testing, they absolutely 100% should ask for a total cholesterol test. Typically levels between 160 to 180, on average around 170 would be ideal. But in commonly what you'll see with kids on the spectrum is their levels are between 100 to about 120. Excuse me, 120, mm. you know, in that range. And so they often need more cholesterol in their diet. And uh, there's a supplement called Sonic Cholesterol, which could be uh, obtained from a from a supplement company called New Beginnings Nutritionals. And uh, I actually have a website that uh, where I actually analyze, you know, a blood test for cholesterol deficiency uh, and then, you know, help people get, you know, access to the cholesterol. Uh, and that's called GetSonicCholesterol.com. But that's okay. an important uh, important one that, that people need to be aware of because uh, many, many kids are, are deficient, actually, in cholesterol. Yeah, I do remember you speaking about that, and um, that might be a surprise to people because in this country we're brainwashed to think we have to ratchet that number down when actually, like you said, it's used to make a lot of important things like our sex hormones and um, you know, just the myelin. So it is super important. And, um, you know, so don't be shy about adding fat and healthy eggs to the diet. Well, um, Dr. Waller, I won't keep you any longer. I do appreciate, you know, this super informative um, talk. And can you tell listeners where they can get in touch with you if they want to do a in-person appointment or a Skype or telephone appointment? Where should they go? Yeah, they can go to uh, my office website, which is mymysunrisecenter.com. That's S-U-N-R-I-S-E center.com. Our office phone number is 951-461-4800. And then the email is just info at mysunrisecenter.com. And then if they want to learn more about me, um, like you mentioned in, the, in your intro, my main website, you know, Dr. Wohler, D-R-W-O-E-L-L-E-R.com, has links to all the different website resources that I have. Terrific. I know I have referred some parents to your website just to start filling in some holes and you know I'm starting to do this testing in my practice and finding that the organic acid test is really helpful and um, you know just getting the diet in place it's free (laughs) and just going at a pace that works for you know your child and your family and it doesn't you know like you said have to be overnight but we're just walking down a path and and the encouragement is when you see behavior change that you know how powerful these therapies can be absolutely yeah so keep keep up the great work yeah thank you so much i appreciate you being on the call today and you have a great day you too take care bye-bye bye-bye